Welcome to Recover Strong, a podcast that will transform your recovery from an eating disorder by helping you go from theory to practice to mastery. This is your special time to learn new skills, tools, and get the inspiration you need to recover strong. Let's get started. Good morning, warriors. Time to start your day. I'm your host, Jessica Flint. I'm the founder and CEO of Recovery Warriors, a wisdom sharing platform for all people impacted by an eating disorder. Recovery Warriors provides resources and support to heal your relationship to food, body, mind, and soul. I believe recovery is not only possible, but it is worth it. That is why Recover Strong exists, to help you see and connect to the potential that lies within you to find freedom from an eating disorder. Today, we have a conversation with Paul Butenmuller. He is an inspirational warrior who overcame extreme perfectionism and overachieving. After suffering in silence for many years with exercise addiction, restriction, and purging behaviors, Paul finally sought treatment. Now he's secure in his recovery and talking openly and vulnerably about his struggles. Paul is a radiant example that recovery is possible when we surrender to the healing process. Before we get into Paul's story, I want to invite you to take our listener survey and enter our raffle for a free recovery strategy session with me. I'm picking two lucky winners at the upcoming new moon, and if you don't win this time around, you'll stay in the running each new moon. Now, I'm actually one of those people who's done raffles a lot over the years and like never win. And I'm always like, yes, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. And I just want to say, guys, I just won a raffle the other day, my first raffle. So I don't know. I believe in the raffle, the power of the raffle. You can win. I just won. We're all winners. But anyways, I just want to say that if you don't win the first time around, that you'll continue to be in the pot and potentially get drawn at the next new moon. So stay tuned for the winners. And if you get chosen this time around, we'll be emailing you on how to set up your recovery strategy session with me. The link to the survey is in the episode notes below. Your feedback really helps us curate content and the show specifically for you. And I just want to give a shout out to an anonymous listener. When we asked what they found helpful about the show, they said, it's helping me know that I'm not alone in my body image struggles. And so many people struggle with body image. You are definitely not the only one. Which brings me to our guest today who has made significant progress in his relationship to his body. Let's dive into this inspirational conversation with Paul Butenmuller. Welcome to the show, Paul. Oh, hey. Well, I'm happy to join and uh, really looking forward to it. I just want to thank you for the opportunity and I'm really excited about it. Yeah, well, I'm excited to be interviewing you. You know, I mean, if you look at our lineup of guests, we've had some male speakers, guests, but mm-hmm. not many. And so it's always really interesting to get kind of in the, the head of a male who's recovered from an eating disorder and the differences, and then also the similarities. So we can kind of pull back the the myth that it's a completely different journey. And so you have some really amazing writings online that I've looked into and just find your story so inspiring. And one aspect of it was this uh, idea of the golden boy image. Right. Yeah. And what does that mean? Like what when you were kind of experiencing... Uh, yeah, I mean, it was basically, you know, I know a lot of people can relate to it. Um, when I was in treatment, a lot of people kind of had this 
pretty much ungodly expectations of themselves just to be perfect in everything that they did. And I was no different there. Um, grew up in kind of an environment where, you know, a 4.0 GPA and, you know, all American soccer player, baseball player was kind of the almost an expectation. Uh, so it kind of, you know, led to just all this pressure and anxiety that was just pretty much every day, day in, day out that uh, my life was characterized by. So it started at an early age. Oh, it started at a really early age, yeah. I mean, it goes back to first grade almost, and we would go around the classroom, and basically there would be a circle, and you'd do you know, something as basic as multiplication kind of flashcards, and you'd go head-to-head to the person next to you, and if you beat the other person or got the answer first, you advance to the next person. And I remember when I was little, it was like I had to just go around the circle three times in a row without losing or else I had, you know, failed or I was, you know, stupid, something like that. Um, so it's kind of it was like a bit of a competitive drive in it. Oh, extremely, extremely. And that was my parents would actually flash, um, you know, multiplication cards to me when I was little at home and kind of give me half of a second or a second to respond. And if I didn't get it in time, they'd do this torturous sounding buzzer that I was like, Oh my God, I suck. <laughs> like, all right, we got to do this again. Got to do it again until you get it. So it was kind of like that mentality. And then I came from uh, just a very, very competitive family in general. Um, I have two sisters, uh, one's older, one's younger, and they have both actually suffered with an eating disorder as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was, I mean, we used to text each other um, when we were all, you know, across at different parts of the country for college or school and, Kind of say, oh, how far did you run today? Well, I did 12 miles. Well, all right, I got to do 13. And then someone would come back later. Oh, I did 13.1. Sorry. And then where are they in their, their journeys now? I mean, are, um, yeah, my older sister, she's been recovered. She was very inspiring throughout the whole process and is actually the one who spoke to me to go to treatment in the first place. Okay. So, yeah, and then the younger sister, she's also doing great as well and enjoying life, though. So. It's interesting the family kind of ties and in, in the ways, you know, genetics really plays a, a part in developing an eating right. disorder. Do you see in other members of your family as well, like in no, mom's side, dad's side? or um, My dad's side of the family, so I come from a very big family. He has six sisters and one brother. And all six sisters have or currently do struggle with an eating disorder. Wow. Um, so, yeah, that's something kind of, um, you know, I'll see it at Thanksgiving, Christmas parties, and I'm just like, I know what you're doing. I've done it before. Um, and, you know, but it's just kind of like, it's not my process to touch. It's their, their situation. If they want help, I'm happy to talk to them. And I think all of them know what I've been through now. So they've, you know, seen some of my writing. They've talked to me about it. And it's just kind of, you know, eye opening to see when every single one of my aunts on that side of the family, is or has struggled with it before. And it's kind of like, you know, I wonder why that happened. Yeah. No, I mean, they haven't really pinpointed a specific gene, but there's there's definitely mm-hmm. some temperaments that, that lead right. to it. Yeah. Right. And then I think, you know, being around just certain behaviors or beliefs growing up, you mm-hmm. know, that was passed down from, you know, their parents to them, my parents to me and so forth. So that's kind of one of the better things. I don't want to say, you know, when I have a future uh, you know, family or kids, like, all right, I know what not to do because, you know, I won't complain about my childhood. I had a great upbringing, 
But there are these things that when you look back on them, it's just kind of like, that's something I guess I would do differently because this is how I interpreted it. And that ended up forming these, you know, just foundational beliefs that combined, you know, in the long term to lead to an eating disorder. Yeah, there's so many contributing factors. But kind of going back to then your early childhood, you're competitive, you're really kind of always wanting to evaluate yourself compared to others and mm-hmm. and see where you, you measure up. When did you start using food as a way to, would you say it was more of the anxiety was the way that like food helped you with or restriction of food yeah. helped you with that? Yeah, it did eventually. Um, I would say it was around college when that first started happening. I uh, went to a school down in Florida. So away, I'm from St. Louis, so it was away from the family. And, uh, you know, went down there and it was about, I did a three-year undergrad program and then graduate school straight afterwards. And it was at the end of my undergrad where it really started to kind of reveal its, you know, demonic head. I can still remember the kind of back to the golden boy story again is I had walked onto the soccer team and eventually got cut. And I remember it was the hardest call I ever had to make in my entire life because calling my dad and telling him that I'd been cut from the team was like, you know, I had this belief in my head. It's like, oh, I have no son. So one of those, and granted that was wrong, but it was just, uh, you know, the standards I had grown to hold myself to. So Yeah, like that doesn't happen. Like Paul does not get cut. Right, yeah. right, exactly. And, you know, felt like I had let him down. I had let myself down. I was throwing away all this potential I had. And, you know, it just kind of weighed me down. So I eventually turned to cross country instead and just pretty much – Whenever I had any kind of emotions or difficulty in anything, I would be like, oh, time to go run. And basically just swept everything under the rug and went and ran for miles upon miles. And cross country is one of those things where it's like long miles are really applauded, right? Like that type of intense workouts. Exactly. So that was kind of where, you know, eventually I was like looking back on it where I am now. I was like, okay, I can pinpoint exactly where it started when those beliefs really started to come into play too. Um, because, you know, you start to do that and people start, you know, patting you on the back, like you said, like, oh, you did, you know, 15 miles, maybe you should do 16 next time. So that was kind of where the, you know, never enough mentality came into play. And it applied to athletics, it applied to school, it applied to, you know, like even social relationships and things like that. I went through every day and was, you know, it doesn't matter if I set a new record on anything. It was like, okay, I need to beat it somehow. Like, even getting a 4.0 GPA, I was like, you can't beat it, but all right, more extracurricular activities. Now I have to do that. So it was kind of that, you know, mentality that eventually just, it weighed me down and reached a point where after years of, you know, beating myself up mentally and physically, that the only comfort I had was food, basically. And looking back at that time period, like, would you say, were you happy? Like, were you connecting with others? Like, or were you much more in your own world? I was in my own world. I guess the one thing I very much dislike about these Facebook memory things is they'll pop up <laughs> every now and then. I'm like, oh my God, I, I can still remember exact days where I'm like, I had an episode that day. You know, I remember I went to a pizza restaurant this night and ate two whole pizzas, went home, purged, and then ran 20 miles after it. Hmm. And it's just one of those things where I was like, oh my God, like I was compared myself when I talked to people now, like I was a walking zombie. You know, I had basically just like a you know, a shell of a body and disconnected from absolutely everything, whether it was other people, my family, any emotions that came up in me, I just unplugged everything. And it was basically just, like I said, a walking zombie. I had, I had nothing going on whatsoever in my life. 
And so then like in terms of dating and, and kind of connecting mm-hmm. with women, were you just not even putting yourself out no. there or just like, not? I mean, in a way I, I guess I put myself out there, but anything that ever did come up or any opportunity that came up, I basically just pushed them away without really knowing at the time I was, cause I was like, what do you like, what's wrong? You know, this is what I do. I'm normal. <laughs> uh, yeah. Granted, I knew I knew something was wrong, you know, at the time. And I was like, okay, why am I doing this? Why am I thinking this way? Like, why do I feel so guilty if I have a bite of a cookie? Some people were still willing to stick around by me and hang out. And I am shocked to this day that they did. You mentioned your sister was the one who voiced concern. Was that? Yeah. So she said, hey, Paul, this isn't this isn't looking good. No, no. I mean, I remember she, it was after I graduated from school and then came back home. Um, to work and I think we, it was actually the morning after her birthday because we'd gone out the night before and you know they brought like there was alcohol and there was birthday cake so it was kind of those things where I was like oh my gosh like me who's not allowed to put these kind of things in my body just did I feel horrible like you know I'm a piece of crap I remember I just I would beat myself up mentally so badly that it was exhausting so I ended up, again, having like you know a binge and purge type episode that night. Woke up the next morning and went on the longest run of my life, I remember. And as soon as I got back, she was crying on the couch. And she was like, Paul, you know, sit down, talk to me. And that was kind of where she was like, this is something that's really getting serious. And, you know, I'm really worried about you. Um, and she had, you know, having gone through it herself, knew what I was doing. And here I am thinking no one knows and all that kind of stuff. But she knew exactly what I was doing the whole time. And that was kind of where, you know, she offered uh, to get help. And I said, okay, you know, yes, please do. Like I'm at this point in life where if I don't do something, I might not be here much longer to be honest. And that was really where it started to sink in and kind of that's what eventually led to me getting treatment. Yeah. Wow. It's interesting too, how like an eating disorder history can smell an eating disorder. Like exactly. I can find it kind of helpful sometimes because they're like, I've, talk to friends before I'm like, Hey, you know, I've just kind of noticed this in so-and-so and yeah. like, oh my, you're entirely right. And obviously, you know, like having gone through it, it's just like, listen, nobody else would know, but I used to do these exact same things. So. And that, that's exactly, I mean, it's, it's so important too, because some of these things kind of people like you were thinking they were slipping under the radar, but right. they're not. And it's important to kind of open up the conversation to what's oftentimes a difficult conversation. So you have this and she convinces you to go to Mm -hmm. treatment. So what was the next step? Were you like, Uh, well, first he called my dad who was at work that day. And again, that was one of those things where I was like, Oh my gosh, like the failure child. And and it was kind of, you know, one of those things where he like kind of knew something was wrong, but didn't really know what it was. And he eventually, you know, we had to almost like force him to leave work to come over and remember to this day, you know, Laura, my older sister's name is Laura. So there's, <laughs> but she was like, Paul, you know what, like, go ahead and tell him. So I was like, yeah, dad, like, I think, you know, I, last night I did this. I'm anorexic. I, you know, I had an eating disorder. And this is kind of, again, relating back to the, like the way I grew up in where just difficult situations weren't dealt with. However, his response was laughter. So he was, he just kind of like, cause that's when he, whenever he's uncomfortable to this day, he laughs and yeah. kind of, you know, lays it off. I remember that was just one of the most painful moments of my life. Because you feel uh, like you were getting laughed at in a way, like he wasn't taking it little, seriously? Yeah, in or... a way, I felt that, but then I also knew, I was just like, why are you laughing? Like, I'm asking for help in a way, and like you're almost playing it off as like, oh, you're fine, suck it up. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's painful. It was. It was. So that's kind of where Laura was like, okay, I'll put this in my own hands and did some research, reached out to a place. And then the company I worked for didn't take them as insurance. So that's again, kind of another curveball thrown in the past. I was like, all right, whatever. I'm committed to doing this after she had found, you know, one or two places in St. Louis and I reached out to them. That was kind of the way it started. And so, so you ended up going there. Now, there was an interesting, that curveball you mentioned about your employer. Like, didn't you just recently get a promotion? I had, yeah, I had recently gotten a promotion about a month before I was decided to go to treatment. And so what was that like? Because that's kind of a really difficult conversation to have with your employer. Like, oh, yeah, by the way, I have one of the hardest things I've ever done, too. It reminded the way going into it, I felt like I was going to my dad for the first time again when I first told him. Yeah. Because my manager, great guy, loved him. We had a great relationship. And, you know, he always had my back. And then he was the one who helped me get the promotion. So I felt terrible doing this. And then how did the conversation go? I remember I called him on the way into work and was like, hey, you know, I want to talk to you. You know, it's not life or death or anything. So don't panic. But I just, it's kind of serious. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll see you when you get here. So I went to his office, sat down. And I was like, "Was like, this is going to come off as a bit of a shock. But I was like, but I'm taking a leave of absence. I've already decided I'm doing it. And they're right there, you know, kind of the eyes got a little wider. And then I was like, and it's because I have an eating disorder. And his jaw hit the floor. Like, I used to bring lunch into work. And, you know, it was like chicken and veggies or just basically protein, super, super lean protein and vegetables. And that was it. And he knew I would always go and like work out in the morning and work out after work too. So he's like, Oh no, you're just like thought I was, you know, health, super yeah, healthy. Quote unquote, guy. really healthy guy. <laughs> yeah. At the time, like, you know, I didn't even have that clear of a grasp on it. I was like, I don't really know what else to say, but like eventually he got to a point where he was just like, he, he was a little upset. Yes. Which I understood. Um, you know, having just helped me get a promotion and then like, all right, I'm out. See ya. But he was also like, if, you got to point where I don't really understand it, but if this is what you need to do and this is what will make you better, I'll support you. And so then did you end up going back to this job after you were discharged from treatment? I went back to the company. Yes. I had actually gotten a bit of a demotion though. Hadn't been gone for about three or four months, I think. And they, you know, they had the company had done kind of a, a reorg. So they're like, all right, well, Paul's not here. We'll just toss them in this bucket. Um, so when I got back, I was like, oh, gosh, this job sucks now. But kind of was like, all right, you know, this, I was in a very good space. I was completely fine with it. I knew what I had to do to get where I wanted, and that was in my own hands. Um, but thankfully that you know, my company was extremely supportive throughout the entire process. So I have absolutely nothing bad to say about them at all. And everyone there was supportive while I was there. So I was very, very fortunate from that perspective. Yeah, well, it makes sense that the position wouldn't be f- – there because right. if it's a position that they need someone to work yeah, at, it, it needs to be right. filled for three to four exactly. months. Yeah. 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 If they, if they didn't have to replace me with somebody, I would have been a little concerned. Yeah, like really? <laughs> what was I doing again? Exactly. Uh, and so you did the partial hospitalization program. Yes. And what is, what is that? Like, what does that consist of? Um, so it was basically every day from it's 8am to 6pm, Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, three snacks every day. But then again, everyone's kind of on their own individual meal plan. So were you working with a dietitian too? Though? Yes, working with your own personal, I mean, personal dietitian, personal therapist, personal psychiatrist, whatever you need. And it was 
like I said, that's why I was just like, oh my God, this place was right, you know, 20 minutes from my house. I can't believe this. Wow. Were you taking meds uh, before you went? I was not, no. And did you do there? I did not. Um, it was actually because they did not want to put me on any of them, which at the time I was kind of like, you know, I don't really want to either. There's always that just back of mind concern that was in me that I was like, what if I get, you know, kind of attached to them and think I can't function without them? Mm-hmm. Um, but actually they... Um, would not let me take any because my heart rate, resting heart rate was too low already. Oh, okay. And if, you know, like antidepressants or anything typically slows your heart rate. So like, we can't give you these for health purposes, which kind of, you know, I was like, all right, I'm not going to fight that. Yeah. And so then you were doing group therapy as well. Group, Yeah. Group therapy. And that was unbelievably helpful. I remember walking down the first day and just kind of hearing somebody do, uh, you know, what they called their agendas, which were assignments, um, obviously, you know, kind of based on their, their process and their unique situation. And I remember sitting down and just be like, oh, my God, like, this is, what have I got myself into? Just hearing that, you know, like, the raw emotion that went into it. And I was like, this, is this what this place is? Like, I've never said anything like that in my life. Um, <laughs> you know, like, whenever my parents were upset, they would go do something else. Or whether, you know, if there was any anger is like, all right, go to the gym or there's something that, you know, maybe turn to drugs or alcohol or things like that. So just kind of like my whole life, I'm like, if something like this comes up, I run away from it. I don't, I don't address it. And eventually, you know, like I said, it came to be like, I comforted myself through food instead of dealing with it all or restricting food or, you know, whatever, whatever the situation was. Were there other men in the group? Um, yeah, there were actually two other ones when I walked in there, which made me feel a lot better too, to be honest. You know, the, the perfectionist and golden boy in me was, you know, a male with an eating disorder. Like, what has my life come to? Um, you know, felt pretty weak and, you know, really embarrassed about it. And then, you know, going there, obviously seeing other people, I was like, okay, I'm not alone. This is a good start. And, you know, looking back on it now, what I would, you know, what I tell other men who might be struggling with it is like, I feel more masculine now than I ever have in my life. And I'm the guy now who cries during Disney movies. So it's, it's one of those, like, you know, so many different things that in the past I thought were weak or unmanly or not right. And now I look back on it. I'm just like, Oh my God, like I'm so glad I learned these things because going into it, I thought, you know, I, my behaviors were just normal because that's, that's what my brain thought was right. Um, but kind of, you know, going there and seeing and learning, seeing how abnormal my old lifestyle was, was kind of like, oh, my God, like, now I get it. And understanding why an eating disorder came in to kind of protect me from all of that fear that I had and so forth. So that's why I also never forget that first day walking down into group and just kind of having that immediate punch in the gut, like, okay, this is going to be serious. Yeah. Do you remember what you shared? <laughs> or um, I don't remember. I mean, I remember was a long I time remember ago. really emotional on two assignments that I had. And one was kind of just like your life story, basically. And then another one they have every client do too. And I thought it was great is your worst day ever. And even to this day, I, I have all of my assignments still on my laptop and I'll occasionally go back and read them. Um, it's, it's kind of one of the ways that it helps me in my mind, stay in recovery. It's a good resource for me Yeah. Kind of reading what I wrote in that moment. I'm like, wow. But I remember, you know, kind of writing about my worst day and reading about that is really strong motivation to never, 
kind of fall back into old habits or at least be able to identify them when they do arise too. And now having gone there and know how to correct them or what better things I can do to um, prevent that from happening. That's cool that, yeah, you have them there for um, mm-hmm. reflection and everything. And I also just want to say that how cool it is that you can own how important vulnerability is for not only you and coming mm-hmm. in touch with your emotions, but I mean, I think that just makes anybody who's open to being more vulnerable a better partner, just a better friend, loved one. And so. Right. And that's what, too, what I know when I got out of there, I was very open with everybody. Um, and it, it shocked the heck out of some people, you know, coming in, like telling people at work where I had been. And there was like, Oh, what, what? And then telling friends who, you know, I just completely pushed out of my life. I, I sent a lot of them a text or an email or something. It was like, guys, like, I know I've fallen off the face of the earth. I would love to meet up with you. I understand if you don't want to, because I've been, for lack of a better word, a pretty big hole, but I would love to talk to you guys and just tell you, you know, what's been going on. And what shocked me the most, honestly, was when I was vulnerable, like it opened up the floodgates for other people being open with me. And it strengthened all the friendships I've had, what I thought were previously completely like ruined. Um, people from high school who are obviously still in my hometown, you know, I, I see them, talk to them all the time now, and I hadn't talked to them for three years. And then just kind of being that open is allowed, in my mind, so many other relationships and experiences to come into my life just by kind of, you know, letting your guard down, being open, being honest with people, and not being afraid to look stupid every now and then or feeling that you have to be this perfect, you know, everybody looks up to you, you never embarrass yourself kind of guy. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool to hear. So what were some other big shifts that came out of going to treatment? So you talk about being more vulnerable mm-hmm. and open. What are some other things that happened? Um, I mean, no, one of the other kind of challenging things was obviously, uh, you know, how to set barriers on other relationships. Um, like I mentioned, my family was, you know, well, have or has struggled with eating disorders in the past and, um, you know, still kind of have the tendency to, you know, bury those emotions when something comes up or turn to drugs or alcohol instead of dealing with emotions. So I remember having to shape relationships with family members that I had previously been, you know, in contact with a lot. And that was really difficult at first. And then even, you know, other people like at work and, you know, just being like, listen, I, I know we used to talk a lot kind of thing. It almost sounds like a bad breakup story, but <laughs> being kind of like, you know, like I just need to need to have my own space for a little bit and can't really be, you know, in uh, in kind of your area because your behaviors might trigger me, they stress me out, things like that. And then, you know, the, or it might be a little simpler and talking to me like this, like when I am around you, you can't, you know, do this. Or when I do come around you, it's, like, it's for this reason. This is why I'm here. This is what I want to do. I don't want to go, you know, like on a, a group run for, you know, three hours. Like, I want to come to spend bonding time with you and, you know, relax and watch football and be able to just kind of, you know, talk to each other on that level instead. Like, why don't we have a deep emotional conversation? Because before now, we've never had one. Yeah. Uh, so kind of, you know, setting those those boundaries was something that was uh, very difficult, but also has helped me to this day. I could say today, you know, the same thing, just 
seeing all the, you know, the friends that have come into my life since then, you know, my new relationship with exercise, which to this day is still just like people, their jaw will hit the floor when they hear it. And they're like, I'll just kind of not go to the gym. I'll come home, sit on the couch for, you know, four days of the week now, or uh, if I'm traveling, I won't work out for a week or two. And they're like, Oh my God, how do you do that? I'm like, Cause that's normal. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. I don't have to, to go to the gym to earn or deserve a meal or, you know, even work like work off a meal that I just had. Cause that was another thing that kind of, you know, a, a family vocabulary that we used to have a lot of, Oh, we're going out for pizza tonight. Better go run a lot. It's always kind of that compensatory behavior. Very much, very much. And, you know, anything that would bring happiness to my life, I felt like I had to do something extravagant to deserve it. Um, whether it was a long, you know, a great workout or, you know, a hundred percent on this test or just, I don't know, some award at work. Like, unless I got something that showed, you know, this, that I was the golden boy, I didn't deserve anything that would make me happy. So that was, again, another, another big shift in my mindset. So that kind of, you know, related to relationships, exercise. Um, and then kind of in my mind, you know, after that was able to just interact with people a lot more. And my, I always tell people my number one favorite thing that has come into my life, my fiance. So, you know, we dated for 10 months before I engaged her. So it wasn't the longest, but it's I remember. Still a good you know, amount I, of time. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was, I mean, her twin brother dated his wife who they've been married for seven years, but they dated for four months. So I was like, all right, we beat that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, technically right. The passion phase is nine months. So <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I mean, just, I know our first date, we went to a bar and, you know, our second date, we went to a, a St. Louis Cardinals game and each time, you know, I had like a beer and some greasy bar food or a greasy hot dog at the ballpark. I was like, there's no way I would have ever done this before. Yeah. I would have never left my house. Like I used to come home from work every day. I was just, I had no energy, you know, from anxiety, stress, depression, going to the gym at four thirty in the morning. I just there was nothing left in the tank and I would I went to sleep every night to numb the sadness and pain that I felt, like physical and mental. When did you decide to tell her that you had this past? Uh, I I remember the conversation vividly. I think it was about two and a half months into us dating. And it was funny because she had done her her proper social media stalking. So <laughs> she uh, she uh she admits to it. But I mean yeah, yeah don't we all <laughs> feeling there was something going on. I just never wanted to ask. Um, but there was one night, you know, at, at like two and a half months into us dating where I was like, you know, like it, it kind of started getting a little emotional. I was like, yeah, you know, I had been through some stuff and like, I'm honestly afraid to tell you because I, you know, this is going well. I've never had a relationship go this well for like probably 10 years and told her. And she actually said, she's like, well, you know, we're not that different or we're not as different as you might think. And she struggled with one when she was younger, um, kind of end of middle school, actually. Um, so she, you know, obviously a little bit younger and hadn't gotten treatment or anything, which is like, yeah, I used to do that same thing. Um, and I was just like, whoa, you know, that's kind of a interesting dynamic to have now. Yeah. So in a way you guys can support each other because you understand oh, like yeah. where the pitfalls are and like, what yeah. To and, avoid. yeah. And that's what, you know, it, it's kind of the good commitment and connection we have with each other just takes it to another level. And she's not afraid to call me out if she has, if she sees something, I'm not afraid to call her out if I see something. So it's kind of, it goes both ways and we know there's no ill will when we do it. Um, but things you know, like going to the gym where 
we have a deal now where I've told her, I, I'm only going, if I do, you know, go to the gym on multiple days, it's going to be two days in a row. I will not do a third. And the other week, I, I just honestly, I not even thought about it. was about to go the next morning. It's like, wait a second. It's like, didn't you go the past two days? I'm like, yes. And there's actually one of my friends had invited me to go to this cycling class with them. I was excited about it. And I was like, oh my, I can't go with six of my friends now because, all right. I'm like, I'm going to stay committed to this. I know I prom- like, and then more importantly, like, I promised you that I would not do it, and I'm gonna, you know, stay committed to that promise. And ended up, and I was like, sorry guys, not coming anymore. Have fun with the class without me. Yeah, but uh, you always can go to another class with them if you kind of like schedule. Exactly. You know, like- exactly. But then even at the time, you know, it's like not working out. You know, six out of seven days or seven out of seven days even was a foreign concept to me, and now it's just kind of. You know, having her to support me through it and knowing, again, like just that new healthy relationship with exercise is something I would have never seen coming. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, when they're just starting to get like kind of the idea of, okay, I'm going to try to change my relationship to exercise and food. I really want to get at this eating disorder. And they get really scared about losing the exercise piece. And will yeah. it ever come back? Will I ever be able to? But it sounds like from from what your story is saying is that you've been able to find this middle ground where you're still able to go sweat it out and do Mm -hmm. activities you enjoy in body movement. You're no longer kind of doing it as a need to compensate. Right. And that's what, you know, days I don't go to the gym, it's not like I just sit like a blob on the couch and I'm like, oh, this is great. But um, but yeah, I mean, things like going on a walk now, my fiance and I love to go to the park right down the street and just walk through the walk through the park there every now and then or yoga, which I used to make fun of. I now love um, and things like that. Cause it used to be just run left weights. You know, it, if I wasn't wanting to basically like end the workout within five minutes, it wasn't hard enough. Um, whereas now it's just, you know, things that are just, just being outside is something that's calming to me now. Even it doesn't matter what it is. And yeah, well, it's kind of like the way I see it is like this is more of these like gentler activities, but it's not yeah. just in activities, but it's like thoughts and relationship to yeah. self, like less hard and strict and stringent exactly. on self. That's awesome. I love it. How can all the recovery warriors stay in touch with you? Oh, I mean, I'm more than happy to talk to anybody ever. I mean, email, social media. I'm a wide open book now after <laughs> having been through everything, um, you know, like to think I've broken down kind of the barriers. So I'm, I mean, um, you know, my email is accessible after this or, you know, Facebook or Instagram or anything. Any, what are your be- uh, account handles and stuff? Um, honestly, well, I've Facebook. I was just the my name email. It's first initial and last name at gmail.com. And then Twitter, I think it's at Paul Butte. Okay. Our Instagram is at our Paul Butte. I think it's P A U L B E U T. Okay, we'll link those all up in the show notes for everyone. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and yeah, before you know, we finish up the show, I just want to acknowledge you for your courage to go into treatment. I know that must have been a really hard decision to make, and just seeing the story, the aftermath of it all, is is a really strong testament to to living life to its fullest and really, um, right. yeah seeing the future. Yeah, I'm I'm lucky I had a a very good support group to get me through it, whether it was my sister or my roommate at the time. I mean, I I couldn't have done it without them. So those are the the people, you know, I I really continue to thank every single day and whenever I see them. More importantly, I do want to applaud you for being so vocal about your experience as a male, as a human, 
uh, I think it's really important that more of these stories get out there. So thank you yeah, for, I agree. for sharing uh-huh. it. Yeah. Well, my final question for you is what is your definition of recovery? I had to sum up the definition of recovery in one sentence. It would be really a life that's not, not defined by metals or material things, but rather by experiences and emotions. Great. Oh, thanks so much for sharing your story with us today, Paul. No, thank you. I appreciate your time. And uh, let me know if I can do anything else going forward to help. I'm more than happy to and passionate about this. So thank you again. Thank you, Paul Butenmuller. Now let's go over three key takeaways from this conversation to help you recover strong. Key takeaway number one. Free yourself from the achievement trap. This one is a nod to my warrior friend Brandilyn Tebow's book, The Achievement Trap, which perfectly describes what Paul struggled with before he found recovery. The achievement trap is what has you believing that no matter what you accomplish, it's never good enough and you must achieve more. When you're in the achievement trap, the goalposts are constantly moving, leaving you feeling like you're not thin enough, smart enough, successful enough, loved enough. There are so many ways we can slice and dice the wording, but essentially it boils down to not being enough as you are. I can pinpoint exactly where it started, when those beliefs really started to come into play too, um, because people start patting you on the back like, oh, you did 15 miles, maybe you should do 16 next time. So that was kind of where the, you know, never enough mentality came into play. And it applied to athletics, it applied to school, it applied to, you know, like even social relationships and things like that. I went through every day and was, you know, it doesn't matter if I set a new record on anything. It was like, okay, I need to beat it somehow. Like Even getting a 4.0 GPA, I was like, you can't beat it, but all right, more extracurricular activities. Now I have to do that. So it was kind of that, you know, mentality that eventually just it weighed me down and reached a point where after years of, you know, beating myself up mentally and physically that the only comfort I had was food. Your accomplishments are not who you are. Your GPA, weight, or calories burned say nothing about your inherent worth as a human. It's great to have goals and achieve things. And there are healthy and helpful ways to embrace this, but it can be taken to an extreme and that's when you've fallen into a trap. So that is key takeaway number one, free yourself from the achievement trap. Key takeaway number two, your recovery comes first. Taking care of yourself isn't just a nice bonus, it's a necessity, and it's not something that's only for other people. It's for you too. Your health is important. Taking care of it's one of the kindest things you can do for yourself and for the others in your life in in order to have a better version of you. Paul put recovery first in a very brave and significant way when he told his boss he was taking time off for treatment. So I went to his office, sat down, and I was like, like, this is going to come off as a bit of a shock. But I was like, but I'm taking a leave of absence. I've already decided I'm doing it. And right there, you know, kind of the eyes got a little wider. And then I was like, and it's because I have an eating disorder and his jaw hit the floor. Like eventually he got to a point where he was just like, he, he was a little upset. Yes. Which I understood. Um, you know, having just helped me get a promotion and then like, all right, I'm out. See ya. But he was also like, if he got to a point where I don't really understand it, but if this is what you need to do and this is what will make you better, I'll support you. Paul didn't ask his boss for time off for treatment. He told him it was happening. 
Paul knew it was what he needed and he advocated for himself. This is a big example, one that takes a lot of risk and bravery. But there are many ways you can do this, both big and small. Maybe you can practice by setting a small boundary or taking time for self-care. No matter what it looks like for you, you deserve to take care of yourself and your health. That was key takeaway number two. Your recovery comes first. Finally, key takeaway number three. Vulnerability builds connection. Paul spent so much of his life trying to keep up with the perfect golden boy image. This included pretending that everything was okay on the outside while hiding his true struggles and pain from the world. Now Paul is open about everything he's been through, and he was surprised to find the deeper level of connection it brought with the people in his life. When I was vulnerable, it it opened up the floodgates for other people being open with me, and it strengthened all the friendships I've had. Um, People from high school who are obviously still in my hometown, you know, I, I see them, talk to them all the time now, and I hadn't talked to them for three years. And then just kind of being that open has allowed, in my mind, so many other relationships and experiences to come into my life just by letting your guard down, being open, being honest with people and not being afraid to look stupid every now and then or feeling that you have to be this perfect, you know, everybody looks up to you, you never embarrass yourself kind of guy. There is so much power in letting down your walls and sharing your journey. It invites a deeper and more meaningful level of connection with others. It can be scary to do, But you don't need to rip the band-aid off and spill your whole heart if you don't feel ready. You can practice opening up in smaller ways or by sharing what's going on by writing in a journal. We don't become our recovered selves by ourselves, and embracing vulnerability builds connection. So these are our three key takeaways from this conversation with Paul Butenmuller. Well, my warrior friend, thank you for having the discipline to listen in. If you found this episode helpful and know somebody in recovery who could benefit from its inspiring message, please share this show with them. It would mean the world to us at Recovery Warriors if we can get our cause out to more people struggling with an eating disorder. So if what you heard today was helpful, share the show with another warrior or anyone on your treatment team. You can do this directly from your podcast player or send them over to recoverywarriors.com. We have a goldmine of free resources there for all stages of recovery. And until the next episode, may compassion light the path you are on and courage keep you on it. You totally got this, warrior. 